702. The Naked Scientist. Time for The Naked Scientist with Dr. Chris Smith. We take your calls on 011-883-0702 and the WhatsApp line 072-702-1702. Doctor, how are you doing? I'm very good. How are you? I am good. I'm good. And I'm so excited for this first question that's come in because I'm also fascinated to know. And they ask, Doctor, what are the top five tests that a man over 40 must do? And I think that's a, that's a conversation we probably don't have enough of. I presume we're talking medicine and not yes. doing a driving test or something <laughs> like that. But, yes, um, definitely. Yes. Obviously, living is a dying process, and the older oh, we get, so the sad. greater our risk. The greater our risk uh. of succumbing to a whole host of different diseases and disorders. And so, there are sex-specific ones, and therefore there are things that men think of. There are things that women think of. But age is the biggest risk factor for almost everything. Mm. And so, yes, as you get older, you should start to worry about some of these things. Number one is, what's your blood pressure, and what's your cholesterol level? because those two things affect probably your highest likelihood of dying, which is heart disease. And about one person in two, one person in three will be affected by heart disease in their lifetime. Mm. And it will prematurely end their death in a significant fraction of those cases. And the biggest risk factors for heart disease is high blood pressure and what your lipids or your cholesterol level shows. So if you have a family history, if you're male, and if you have other risk factors for heart disease like smoking, like obesity, a poor diet and so on, then keeping tabs on your blood pressure and on your blood lipids, cholesterol, and treating them accordingly is a really, really sensible thing to do. So that's number one. And number two, I would say, blood pressure and cholesterol. As we get older, men, by the age of about 80, 100% of people have got prostate cancer. I'm not trying to be alarmist. That mm. is a fact, that as we get older, men have a greater likelihood of getting prostate cancer, and it gets to the point where almost all of us will have it. But the difficulty is that not all of us are going to die from it. Mm. Many of us will die with it without even knowing we even had it. So we need to know who needs to be treated. Now, there is a bit of a poison chalice in this one, because there are tests you can do, but you have to accept that they're not going to be perfect and they're going to get it wrong some of the time. So therefore, men as they get older should consider getting a PSA, prostate-specific antigen test, but understand that this is not a perfect test and there are limitations, but it can help to point to those people who will have a problem with prostate cancer and therefore may need intervention that will stop them developing more severe manifestations of that disease that could bring their life to a premature end. So that's number three. Then there are other things like your general health and uh, your your risk factors that may bring your life to a premature close. Alcohol in moderation is a sensible thing. If, if you're a drinker, drinking moderately and not having binges. So keeping tabs on that. And also keep an eye on what you do when you go in the toilet because we know that bowel cancer is one of the leading causes of death and morbidity in most countries now. And one of the things that you can easily keep tabs on is what's going down the loo. If things have changed, if there's been a change in bowel habit, take note of it. If it's a new thing that's here today, gone tomorrow, that's different than if you've got a a relentless change in bowel habit or you're noticing blood, for example, or, or, or changed motions. 
take those seriously. Don't ignore it. Mm. And if you do see that kind of thing, please go and speak to somebody. So those would be my top five things. And then there's other things that we can just do sensibly that we should all be doing anyway, like eat healthily, make sure you get enough sleep, because if we don't sleep enough, then now we know that's at the root of a whole host of things, including mental illness, which is affecting one person in every eight now. I mean, huge numbers of people are affected by mental ill health and, and getting a good night's sleep, number one. So looking after yourself and eating properly is a really good start. But those five things would be on my, on, are on my priority checklist for myself. So earlier on in the show, and thank you for that, Doctor, we were talking about the things, um, you know, all of the listeners may have successfully quit. And it ranged from a smoker who quit cold turkey um, to some saying, I'm struggling to quit um, coffee. I'm drinking 12 to 15 cups a day. Now, there are a variety of people where there was a really big incentive. The one who quit uh, smoking was a competition where $100,000 was the prize. Another person uh, uh, who is trying to quit say they can go three months without drinking, for example, but when they do start drinking, it becomes a problem. So what is the science behind? And it does not have to be um, uh, substances that are highly, highly addictive or on the extreme like alcohol and drugs, even sugar, even um, people that are supposed to not touch um, lactose but continue to do so. What is the science behind being able to quit something that you are psychologically, emotionally, mentally or even physically addicted to? Why can some people just quit one day? Why can some people just stop biting their nails one day and others are completely struggling? I'm minded of James Bond, who said, giving up smoking's easy. I've done it hundreds of times. <laughs> and I think then went on to say, and I always smoke after sex. And right now I'm trying to get it down to about 100 a day. <laughs> um, yeah. And actually the yeah. listener who quit cold turkey said he realized that smoking, his smoking was attached to certain things like after a meal he'd want to smoke or after a good day he'd want a cigarette. So it's interesting that you say that. Yeah, well, that was really the prelude to my point, which is that a lot of drug taking behavior is social. So environment matters and, and it's linked to certain behaviors and we learn the behavior and we like the behavior. I like coffee. I don't do anything like 15 cups a day, but I certainly do drink a healthy or perhaps that could be unhealthy intake of coffee. I certainly like it and I certainly feel like I'm not liking the day until I've had a decent coffee and it certainly picks me up. Now, am I addicted to it? Well, probably, but is it doing me any harm at the dose I'm taking it? Probably not. So one has to then ask, well, do, do I actually need to do this? Mm. Well, if I was going to bed really late, not getting enough sleep and then using caffeine as a crutch to get me out of bed in the morning, to get me through my days, or if I was a school child, to get me through my lessons, that is a problem. And so before considering giving up anything, you have to ask, well, is this actually a thing that I need to give up? Because there are some things which actually they're quite enjoyable and they're not doing you any health harm or they're not pointing towards some underlying reason why you're doing them. And part of the reason why that person might relapse back onto, you mentioned one of those cases, you mentioned someone said they'd go months and then they'd be back on it again, whatever it was. Well, the environment or their situation may change and they're stimulated, nudged into doing that because they're using it as some kind of chemical crutch or a, a sort of psychological cosh, as it were, in order to make themselves get through a bad patch. So really, the first thing you've got to look at is, 
getting off the drugs is one thing or whatever the the behavior is staying off is another and people who have been hooked on something will go through what's called rapid reinstatement especially with things like booze which are really easy to get hold of if you have been hooked once you cannot go near the thing again because mm. you will very quickly slip back into the behavior that got you there in the first place and that means often divorcing yourself from the environment that got you like that in the first place it doesn't really matter what the the thing that you think you take too much of is it's the environment that's that facilitates the mindset and the situation that then puts you on that slippery slope so have a look at your environment and if you are determined to change something you have to make sure you don't slip back into it and uh, this is really classically exemplified by people who say well i'm going on a diet i'm going to lose some weight because that will be healthier for me reduce my risk of diabetes high blood pressure etc and they do brilliantly they up their exercise they cut their calories they do all the right things they get their weight to a healthy level what do they do they then say well i've done it now and they go back to the lifestyle they had before because mm. they think well i've lost all the weight now but the lifestyle they had before got them into the situation that made them want to lose weight in the first place so it's about changing the environment and the lifestyle to make sure that you don't need the thing that you think you're abusing so it's there's not a gap there for it to fill for you and i think then that explains why some people do change their circle of friends when they are trying to change their lifestyle they absolutely must. And um, when I was first a junior doctor, one of the most memorable cases of people I looked after was a person, a patient who came in at death's door as a heroin addict. And uh, by the time that that person with the horrible infections that we cleared up uh, was, was out of hospital, they were a transformed individual. They didn't even look the same. But then they went back if they went back to the environment they'd come from where all of their friends are hooked on the same stuff and of course all their friends want them hooked on the same stuff because they've got money that they could be sharing with them to buy more of this stuff and very quickly if you go back into that environment you very quickly relapse into that environment so part and parcel of rehabilitating someone is also looking at how to make sure they go back into an environment that is conducive to them staying well not relapsing mm, mm. dr christmas thank you so much we're going to take a break when we come back more of your questions 702 the naked scientist we're still with the naked scientist we take your calls on audible one double eight three oh seven oh two and the whatsapp line oh seven two seven oh two one seven oh two get through to us for your science related questions we have got thomas from Sanson. hi thomas hi, yes how are you doing Yes, I've got a new... Good, yes, good. Uh, I just want to know... Thomas, can you just speak into your handset? We can't hear you properly. Thomas? Hello? Yes, can you just speak into your handset? I'm not sure if we're on speaker. We can't hear you clearly. No, I'm not, I'm, I'm not speaking. Okay, I'm going to pass... Let me pass you back on to our producer. Let's see if we can get you on a much better line there. There's a WhatsApp message from Rose in Randburg. That says, hi, I have a question for Dr. Chris. I need to ask the scientist the relationship between autism and speech. I have a non-verbal autistic child who is 11 years old. Yeah, uh, this is complicated. And what we know about autism is that this is a neurodevelopmental thing, disorder that starts probably from the time that the brain is forming because individuals who have autism do have different wiring in their brain in other words the map of connections is different and so an autistic individual will prioritize certain functions and certain behaviors over others and they do some things very very well they do some things much more poorly than average 
So when you look at what that manifests as, it can include failure to engage socially, and it can also include speech and language developmental delay. But that said, there are some individuals with autism who are absolutely fine in that respect, but they may have other manifestations of, of the condition. So really, it, it really comes down to the individual. And I'm not a child psycho psychiatrist or psychologist, and I'm not an expert in this by any means, but it really comes down to the individual and what works for them. Because we know that uh, with anything to do with the nervous system, it's a case of use it or lose it. And the more that you do something, the better you become at it. And if you start from a lower point, it doesn't mean you can't improve. You're just starting from a lower point. And it doesn't mean you don't need that same input. So my advice w would be with anyone in this situation is you treat them just the same and enrich for the things that they might struggle, giving them more attention or giving them more time to relate to you verbally if, if they don't necessarily want to do that voluntarily. But certainly don't not do it because they may appear not to want to do it themselves because the more that you do these sorts of things the more comfortable you're going to become and the more comfortable they're going to become trying to do it but you do your best and you find what works best with that person and generates the best out of the relationship thank you so much uh, Meryl from Mayton hi good day uh, my name is Meryl um, and I've got a question for the naked scientist Yes, go can ahead. Can you hear me? Yes, we can. Go ahead, Meryl. Right. I have Crohn's disease, and I'm on medication. I take Salazapyrin. Now, uh, despite taking the medication every second day, I am having a problem. My tummy works almost every time I go to the toilet, and it really is a tremendous hassle. And I, I really want to know from from Christmas, what can I do besides taking my medication to try and alleviate this going up to, to the toilet all the time that is such a hassle? Oh, I'm so sorry to hear that. What Meryl's describing is Crohn's disease, which is a form of inflammatory bowel disease, IBD. And... We don't know why this happens, but some individuals are susceptible to this. It may be associated with some kind of reaction to our own microbiome, the bacteria that live in us and on us. It may be a reaction to the wrong sorts of microbes beginning to dominate our microbiome. And the evidence for that is that you can control the condition by very, very strict and rigid control of diet, but it's totally miserable trying to eat like that. So most people try to control the condition, which is associated with inflammation anywhere along the gastrointestinal tract, from ulcers in your mouth right through to a sore bum. But usually it causes problems along the intestine, and, and it can be so severe that you actually get holes in the intestine joining and sticking loops of bowel together. But it causes intense pain, bloating, blowing up, malabsorption, and frequent trips to the lavatory. And really it comes down to getting to the bottom of what will control the condition for that person. And if you say you're on medication, if that's not controlling it or your symptoms have changed, then you need to get the doctors who are looking after you to reevaluate the situation and see if they can do anything else to either intensify the therapy, perhaps give you a period of, of more intense therapy to get the disease under control and then reduce things down to some kind of maintenance dose 
consider changing the therapy because there are quite a few drugs now that can be used to control Crohn's disease, but because it's linked to how your immune system works, they're not without side effects. And you do end up with, with an impact on the immune system from some of these from some of these drugs. The upside is that your symptoms improve. The downside is that you are more susceptible to infection and the consequences of suppressing the immune system. But it certainly sounds to me like this needs more investigation, possibly an intensification of the treatment or a switch in medication to try to get control of it better for you. Thank you so much, uh, Meryl, for that question. On the WhatsApp line, it's unsigned, but the question is, what effect does dishwashing liquid uh, or dishwasher liquid have on the body, like the remnants that would be on one's hands? Dishwasher liquid is concentrated detergent. And detergents are chemicals that have got an oily part to the molecule and then a water-loving bit to the molecule. And the way they work is that when you put your greasy dishes in the dishwasher and you throw this stuff at the dishes, the oily bit sticks into the grease on the dish and it drags the dish, the grease off the dish surface and into the water because the water-loving bit helps it to dissolve the grease. So you bring the grease off of the surface into the water then you throw the water away and because the dishwashers do a rinse cycle afterwards, they should wash off all those residues. That's not to say there might be tiny amounts of residue left behind, but the amount that's there should be present in such low levels that it won't have an impact on our health. So in theory, if your dishwasher has rinsed things off properly, there shouldn't be anything left behind. Okay, then another question that has come through um, is... A listener who's saying that they drink about 12, and it's not the same one from earlier, saying, Doctor, I drink about 12 to 15 cups of coffee per day. Whether The weather doesn't have an effect on my intake. I can also drink a cup five minutes before bedtime and I will still fall asleep at the same time. I've never been sick. Only the, the flu and slight kidney complications at some point. Is this bad for my health? I drink Jacob's Nescafe and they list um, different brands of instant coffees. So it's not filter <laughs> coffees, saying depending when they have extra cash. Yeah, I mean, it comes down to how strong you make the coffee, what the make of the coffee is. Someone did a study about 10, 15 years ago where they went to different coffee shops. I think they did this in Glasgow in Scotland. They went to different high street coffee shops and they just bought a shot of espresso and then took it back to their laboratory and tested it. And some coffees had about 500% more caffeine in them than others for the same amount of coffee. So really it depends on what you're drinking and whether you're making it yourself, shaking the jar at the cup to half fill it with coffee granules and then a dash of water or, you know, a tiny wisp of coffee and loads of milk. It really matters how you, how you make the coffee. So 15 cups for one person isn't going to be the same as 15 cups for another because we're all doing it differently. If it's not affecting your sleep and it's not necessarily affecting any other aspects of your behavior, then you'd be hard pressed to say that there aren't other habits you could have that are far worse. On the other hand, it probably is quite a high intake, 15 cups, possibly quite strong coffee, and you are possibly likely to have withdrawal symptoms if you stop that. So maybe you should consider cutting that down a little bit and asking why do you need to drink that much coffee in the first place? If it's just liquids, could you substitute some other liquid instead? If it's because you're feeling tired all the time, do you need to look at your sleep hygiene? Do you look at, need to look at how well you sleep and how well rested you normally are? And then you perhaps wouldn't need that kind of pick-me-up. Or is mm. it just a social thing? So mm. those are all the things to think about. Mm. Thank you so much, Dr. Chris Smith. Back together next week. This conversation will be podcast. If you know- Ready 